We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organized chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting Intelligence Squared too. That's notion.com slash squared. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello and welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast with me, Farah Jassad. And me, Daniel Benkorn. This week, we have the psychologist Julia Shaw speaking to us about the concept of evil, Yeah, so this week we had Julia Shaw. She's a German-Canadian psychologist. She's got a book out called Making Evil, um, which, as you say, is exploring the concept of evil. Why do people do bad things? And she looks into some quite taboo subjects in the process. And what sorts of questions is she exploring? So, for instance, how similar are normal people to, you know, some of the most kind of evil and reviled people in society? Um, can artificial intelligence be evil? Does, does evil really even exist? Is that really that useful of a concept? Some really interesting questions that she unpacks in this episode, and we hope you enjoy listening. Yes, we hope you enjoy it. And if you're based in London and are interested in coming to one of the Intelligence Squared live events, you can go and buy tickets on our website at intelligencesquared.com. And because we're so pleased that you're a listener to our podcast, we can give you an exclusive 20% discount code. Just type in podcast at the checkout. Hello, I'm Rosamond Irwin, a journalist for the Sunday Times, and welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast. You can sign up for regular updates about podcasts and other events at intelligencesquared.com. I'm here today with Julia Shaw. So what I think's fascinating about somebody who's written about evil, and evil is in the title, is you don't really believe there is such a thing. And I'm sure it's a point that others have made, but I wanted you, first of all, I think it's a good starting point, uh, and that's where we should sort of jump in. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's been pointed out to me more than once that I, uh, effectively it's a manifesto against the concept of evil, if you will, the, the book. And I think that uh, having it on the cover is provocative, and it's supposed to get you to think about lots of concepts that you normally or most of us normally associate with the word evil. And so the whole point of the book is to explore various concepts that we, I think, wrongfully use the word evil to describe. But they still have a lot in common because you could say it's, you know, humans behaving badly. Mm. We do quite love that as a word. And I wonder if you think that's a lot to do, and you talk about this a bit in the book, about us distancing ourselves from it. So an 
evil is other than us. Mm-hmm. It is not what we are. And, and, and when we see sort of, um, you know, when, when there are horrific murders and people are described as perhaps born evil, it means that we think, oh, that is not like us. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So I think that the... One of the one of the worst things we can do is to label someone or something evil, partly because it distances ourselves, as you said. Um, so the the phrase I like to use for that is that evil is something that other people are, um, and so within that is embedded this idea that we underestimate the likelihood that we're able to do horrible things, which I think we often do underestimate. We don't think about ourselves enough. We don't think about the, our capacity for wrongdoing and and reflect on our own hypocrisies. I mean, lots of us do things we're not proud of somewhat regularly, but we don't really think about it. And so it's much easier to divide the world into good guys and bad guys or good people and bad people and the bad people we label evil. And so I think and, and that othering can really dehumanize others and make it much more difficult for us to actually face the things that can corrupt and destroy society. So reading your book, I kept thinking how interesting it was to hear a scientist saying this, because this is something that um, philosophers do say a lot. And, you know, people who specialize in ethics talk Mm -hmm. about the fact that, you know, evil, this sort of good, bad, black, white, good, evil uh, dichotomy is is not binary in the way that we think it is. There is not that dichotomy there. Um, But it's really fascinating to have it from a scientist, because I think you take a very different approach, therefore, to exploring it. And where did that inspiration come from to look at it in that way? So, I mean, even philosophers fundamentally disagree on whether there is such a thing or whether we should use the term, whether it's a useful concept or this idea that humans need the word evil because otherwise we can't possibly communicate the worst possible uh, appropriate to one another. This idea that we need to we need a word that's worse than very, very bad. And so there's a, this, this, there's a lot of discussion about this, and there always has been as far as philosophy has been concerned. Uh, but uh, as a scientist, I think that that discussion is interesting, but it, I, I prefer the practical side of it. So what does it mean when we use the term? And then what, it, what do we actually mean when we dissect it? And so as a scientist, I want to go in, and I, that's what I did in the book, and look at what are the components we're actually talking about when we're talking about evil in various ways, and how do we understand those different pieces? And then if we put it all back together, what does this puzzle reveal about the fundamental nature of humanity and about ourselves? So let's start sort of thinking about humanity and what is sort of not unique to people we think of as evil, but something inherent within a lot of us, that sort of hunger for violence that you talk about in the book. Why do you think it is? And even if that only manifests itself um, in a sort of fascination with serial killers that a lot of people um, can relate to, because we think it's, again, partly perhaps because we think it's different from us. Mm -hmm. But, um, But I wondered, you know, where do you think that hunger for violence comes from. We see it in the consumption of very violent films or uh, very violent video games, that there is something that about us in us that seems to enjoy violence, in a lot of us, not, not everyone. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's the fundamental part of it, which is that it's exciting. I mean, the sort of if you're driving past uh, sort of an accident on the street, I mean, the reason you rubberneck is because you're it's exciting. It's interesting what's happening over there. There's a curiosity, I think, that is is quite fundamental to being human around understanding harm to others and to ourselves and trying to figure it out and and to watch it. Um, But on 
other levels, I think it's, I mean, that playing with our own fears. I mean, horror movies are sort of the epitome, I think, of of entertainment that taps into that. It's a whole genre that is based around our fears and about making our fears come to life in a in in the context of a movie. And so we let ourselves be scared in what you could consider a safe way. And so I think this is what's core to a lot of our hunger for for violence and evil is it's a very safe way of exploring it that we normally engage in. So we normally watch it, right? It's a safe distance. You can disengage whenever you want. You can turn it off. Um, in real life, that's very different. So most of us don't go see, go you know, actually intentionally down dark alleys to go see what we'll find. That's too much. And so I think it is interesting to, to think about the, the times and, and places in which we consume evil and things in, in inverted commas, right? Uh, we consume things around evil and violence uh, and how we, we like to be scared. We're sort of seeking out a sanitized version of it that isn't really a threat to our safety, right? Exactly. A sanitized version. And I think we probably do fundamentally know somewhere that we're capable of some pretty terrible things. And sometimes our own thoughts scare us. And I mean, things like murder fantasies are surprisingly common. There's been some research on this. And most of us at some point will fantasize about killing a partner or killing a colleague or killing our boss. That's a really popular one. Or maybe you have a step-parent who you really don't like. Um, and more than half of us will have these fantasies, but of course most of us don't go through with it. And so, But the, the, the thoughts, however, can scare us and can make us wonder what we might be capable of. And so I think watching someone like a psychopath on TV and empathizing effectively even with that character temporarily can make us explore that a little bit. But we need to be careful that it doesn't make us feel like we've actually engaged with the topic in a meaningful way when all we've really done is, in fact, entertain ourselves. Mm, you talk about in the book about how a lot of murder actually comes from very mundane mm -hmm. situations, not from the sort of things that we think about. And perhaps TV and books and, uh, you know, TV and novels make us think that murders are always, you know, these sort of very complicated causes. But actually, they're very often over very trivial things in reality. Um, and that mundane element to it. Did that surprise you, finding that out? Or was that what you expected to find? So I borrow a term from Hannah Arendt here, mm. where I talk about the banality of murder. And I, I was surprised. So I think that even as a criminal psychologist, uh, I was influenced by theatrical depictions of murderers. And it's because they're sensationalized, because they're, they're almost sexualized and glorified. I mean, and within this, there's, I mean, as a subcategory, there's this whole industry of murderabilia, of people who collect things that murderers make in prison, which is a whole subcategory of really interesting things attached to sort of the, the, the celebrity of murder. Um, but even just in film depictions, we see these horrible, horrible cases and often with a lot of planning, very meticulous individuals, sometimes psychopathic. And we forget that most people don't have that level of planning when they murder someone. I mean, the examples that I list from research in the book are things like killing someone over a few dollars. So a lot of it is effectively letting a situation get out of hand and knowing that you are intentionally doing something that could kill someone or is likely to kill someone, which is our definition of murder, but not in a sort of long-term thinking about it for weeks kind of way, more in a not thinking it through and not actually anticipating and, and regarding the consequences of your actions kind of way. You talked about the banality of murder there. Something you say towards the end of the book is about the banality of heroism. And actually, I thought there was something really wonderful about that because 
in the same way, this is sort of the, the yin to the yang, isn't it? That in the same way that we're all capable of great evil, we're all capable of being heroic. Mm-hmm. Um, and the whole uh, idea of don't meet your heroes because you find out they're like you, actually that could be quite an inspiring thing. And I think you made that point. So what is it you think... I mean, why do you think, even when it's a good thing, we imagine that the, that people are very different from us who are capable of great bravery? Again, I think possibly we lack imagination. So this is something that Philip Zimbardo has done some research on most recently. So Philip Zimbardo was, uh, became famous for his Stanford Prison Experiment, mm. uh, which is one of the sort of biggest experiments the world has ever certainly talked about when it comes to conformity and um, people abusing positions of power to hurt, to hurt others. And he has turned his attention to the deviance that can also be positive. I mean, and deviance, I mean, in the sense of deviating from the norm. And in that sense, it's uh, when you when you go against the norm, you can also do great things, things that are much better than the average person. And I think when we meet our heroes, we realize that they're human beings. And I think there there is this, again, like sort of celebrity stardom that we, we place people on these pedestals and go, wow, yeah, they're incredible. I can never be like that. And we look down and we go, oh, I can never be like that. <laughs> and it's a different kind of celebrity now, sort of the anti-hero at the bottom and the hero at the top. Um, but really, all of these are just human beings and we could be like any of them. And it's more about how I mean, we're not necessarily likely to be any of them, but we could. There's different things and different cognitive uh, factors that come in that can make us more likely to act heroically, to accept that we are capable of great positive contributions to humanity, and to try and live that out, to try to avoid and realize that we're also capable of great harm, and to take active measures to prevent that from happening. I think there's an inevitability when we end up when we discuss. Uh evil that we will end up talking about the holocaust and Mm -hmm. uh the systematic murder of millions of people i think that to most people feels so partly it feels such an extraordinary cruelty clearly but it also feels so far apart from what we think humans are capable of Mm -hmm. and i wondered how through, through the context of thinking we're all capable of greatly awful things how does that inform you looking at at the holocaust yeah, so the Holocaust is an interesting. So I'm also I'm half German, and so I feel like there's been an extra level for me of this discussion around my own identity as well, in terms of my own history and how that plays into my understanding of evil and whether that's had any influence on it. Um, but certainly, in terms of people who were witnesses at the time who survived. Um, and either were directly involved or were themselves, for example, Jewish, a lot of people came out of the Holocaust saying, don't be fooled, this could be anyone. Like, these were, quote, normal people. These were our neighbors, these were our fathers, these were our, our mothers and our sisters who were take, participating in this systemic, horrific um, institution. And to think otherwise, to think that this couldn't happen in other countries would be naive and is potentially dangerous. And of course, we have seen it happen again with the Rwandan genocide, for example, or, mm-hmm. or uh, Bosnia and Kosovo and places. Yeah, genocide. I mean, genocide itself isn't uh, is unfortunately neither new nor, and it it seems to be something that keeps coming back in in various horrible, horrible forms. I guess what was somewhat different about Nazi Germany is a it happened here, so there's this idea of it's in our own backyard, and so it's harder to ignore and harder to maybe distance ourselves and other individuals who we feel are 
living next to us. Uh, I mean, Bosnia is also pretty close, but it, it's. Ooh, I think there's been interesting. Um, there's interesting narratives and in how those are differently shared. Uh, but further to that conversation, I think there's the uh, there's a systematic approach. I mean, the German approach was so incredibly documented and so incredibly strategic that I think that takes it to that sort of psychopathic level, where you see this institution that is. So so systematically going after something, which we haven't really seen to that extent before or since, as far as I'm aware. I think that in and of itself was tremendously scary and sticks in our consciousness. You talk in the book about essentially all the accomplices that were needed for that also to happen. Mm -hmm. um, because, of course, you know, we all know the, the mis misattributed quote about, uh, you know, all that it takes for evil to triumph is, us is good is you know it's good people to stand by and not do anything mm -hmm. um but but why is it that we could see this escalation of horrors and yet you're quite right that most people didn't do anything they mm -hmm. allowed their neighbors to be turned into people who were given no worth as a society to the point at which they were essentially exterminated mm -hmm. i mean that's an extraordinary leap from from how we think about civilized society and for something like that to happen so many people must have known and and you know there, there there's plenty to suggest that most people did know mm -hmm. how do i mean how does that happen that we get so many people standing by and doing nothing i mean there's a number of factors one of them of course is being compliant so going along with a situation another is a feeling like you don't want to get involved sort of along the side of like bystanders effectively sort of it's not my role um, and especially if you're not directly targeted it might feel like this has nothing to do with you and so you're going to quote stay out of it but by staying out of it of course you're making a very active decision to not intervene which uh, can certainly be almost as bad as carrying out the act itself and not actually standing up for someone in, when you could potentially save their lives for example um, but I think yeah with I think I think the core, and I think this is something that we slide into much more readily than we might like to accept, is, is dehumanizing others. I mean, we see the rhetoric right now, and we've always seen it in various forms in politics. But right now it's having a bit of a resurgence, this idea of talking about immigrants as cockroaches or talking about, um, I mean, xenophobia in particular or othering of people who look different or have different cultural practices than we do. I think it's a really easy trap to fall into. And effectively what you're doing is you're saying these human beings aren't really human beings at all, at least not the same as you and I. They don't have the same rights. They shouldn't have the same rights, and we need a wall to protect ourselves. And I think it's really, really easy to slide into really horrible acts and to make us capable of then accordingly treating them as subhuman. And that's what we need to constantly be fighting against. I've noticed something that I, that I in our culture, which is that I think we obsess about stories of people who – well, the brave people who did do something. Um, now, clearly, when you look into the darkest bit of, hum you know, one of the darkest bits of human history, you want to find something that's positive. Mm -hmm. And there were obviously extraordinarily brave people who did extraordinarily brave things, risking their own lives and in some cases dying as a result. But we do love those stories and we love, I, th I wonder if there's a part of us, as much as we think those people are heroes, we want to believe that could have been us in, that, in the worst situation. And that's why we focus on those stories. When actually, obviously, that was a tiny minority of people who were brave and, and did wonderful things and, and rescued, again, a minority of people. Mm. Um, 
you know, they didn't save the millions, but they did save people. Um, and I wonder if you think there's something in us that loves to grasp the one tiny little ray of sunshine amidst the sort of deepest, horror, darkest horrors. I mean, there were lots of people who were who fought against the Nazis, and there were lots of people who weren't compliant. So, I, I, I mean, you're right that the her, sort of bigger act of heroism were unfortunately not as common as uh, they, they certainly should have been. But I, I think you're, you're, you are you are tapping into something that we like to see the light in the darkness, if you will. And I think that when talking about evil in various forms or things that are related to the concept of evil, uh, we we do we need to as well go in and out of the darkness. We need to have these moments of remembering the good that humanity also is and knowing maybe that we're capable of it ourselves, but just in general that it's not all dark. Um, and I mean, with the book in general, I, I, I find with lots of topics around evil, this is the issue, is that you can't just talk about how horrible human beings can be to each other because you're going to go mad. Um, and you need to keep sort of resur- resurface, come up, to this, come up for a bit of air and then go back in. Um, and so whether we're talking about Nazis and then we switch to, you know, a positive her- heroic story and then maybe we can switch back to compliance and then maybe we switch to something else. I mean, that's I think we need that as human beings because otherwise we just despair and we shut down, frankly. And so I think shutting down is probably the po- worst possible thing because then you're not en- engaging in any kind of thinking or discussion around something, whether it's dehumanizing others or fighting back or making sure that we don't slip into into problems. But it's I, th- I think it's, it is crucial to have these resurfacing periods. So let's go to something Speaking a tiny bit lighter <laughs> then, uh, just just for the sake of our of our listeners. Um, you talk in the book about something that really fascinated me, which you, which is described as cute aggression. Mm-hmm. And I I have wondered what an earth is feeling is, and, and what it is. Uh, just to be clear, is the sensation that an animal is so sweet that you want to basically squeeze it and maybe even hurt it. And and I think that's quite a common. Well, I hope it is because I felt it. <laughs> but then you slightly worry when you think, gosh, am I am I odd for feeling this? Um, but obviously most of us don't act on it. But what is that feeling? It's a fascinating. Cute aggression. Yeah, I have this towards my partner. So I've <laughs> uh, the more I talk about this, the more I meet others who either look at me sideways and go, why do you want to slap your partner in out of cute? Because you're so, what do you mean you're so in love that you want to like, cheers your cheeks off? Like, what is that? What is that feeling? And is it is it bad? And some people look at me sideways. Others go, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I know what you're talking about. And it's it is a fascinating thing that our brains do where um, on the surface it looks like aggression because you know it's sort of the, the language we use like we want like we use it with babies sometimes if you like babies uh, we use it with kittens and puppies like, for me it's my dog so <laughs> yeah. squeeze you um, and within that it's it's sort of it's, why do I have this feeling and the, the the answer is probably that your brain is so overloaded with positive emotions, with care and with ha- like joy, effectively, that it sh- pushes out the opposite and it gives you this aggressive feeling. And the idea is that that's what's called a dimorphous display. And we have this in other situations where we, for example, cry at a wedding or we laugh at a funeral. So these, these opposite emotions, we experience them from time to time when things are really overwhelming. And it's it's the brain trying to protect itself and not overload by just having too much of one thing. So there is too much of a good thing in this case, and it's cuteness, and your brain's protecting itself. But it's it's pseudo-aggression. 
And so in the, in the book, too, I, I go from exploring sort of little things that we experience on an everyday basis, asking the question, you know, what is this? And then building up into other things, sort of, okay, well, then if this isn't aggression, what is aggression? And, for example, what is passive aggression? I mean, we're coming Valentine's Day in February. You know, we're all very much in love or not, some of us. Uh, and it's sort of the, well, you know, why are we so passive? Why are we such assholes to our partners sometimes? Uh, and why do we do things that are passive aggressive or directly aggressive? And what does that mean about us? So I think it's it's fascinating to venture into these different categories and all the way up to things like serial killers, like the ultimate acts of aggression. So... Um, that's that's certainly the route that I like to take from squeezing animals to serial killer. <laughs> where's the where's the the line? And what do you think in terms of you go through the three types of aggression, so sort of direct, indirect, and then passive. Mm-hmm. But what do you see as so? What can we learn about how to handle aggressive feelings from actually analyzing what aggression is and what its drivers and roots are? So the easiest thing you can do is to have a snack. Um, so there's definitely research showing that if you don't have enough glucose in your system, you're much, I mean, you know this, it's called being hangry. Uh, you're just so hungry because you're you're angry because you're hungry. Uh, I, again, something I definitely experience. And so bringing up your glucose levels can help. Um, but the biggest thing for aggression is, has for a lot of things really, is to try and engage your prefrontal cortex. Try to engage the part of your brain that's responsible for decision-making. And long-term, like, think about the consequences. Think about, you know, give, give ideally, if you can, emotions and behaviors some time to cool down before you make a decision as to what you're going to do. Um, and so I guess that's more, it's not that, I don't think there's a solution for never feeling aggression, but I think there are ways of de-escalating it and to deal with it better and not let it manifest in behavior that is aggressive. One of the um, things that's obviously changed radically over the last sort of 10, 15 years is, is technology. And that gives us clearly more places to put our anger. Mm-hmm. And so we talk a lot at the moment about, um, you know, trolling on social media, people putting very angry views. But it's also the immediacy and the anonymity that are, that are interacting there. So you can immediately go on your phone and complain about somebody or something on Twitter. And at the same time, you're, you have a level of anonymity. You're not actually saying it to that person's face or a person's face. You're sh- sort of shouting it into the void. Um, what do you think in terms of how technology has changed the way we behave? And should this is this something we should all be aware of and yes. trying to fix? <laughs> we should. Uh, whether we try to fix it. I mean, it's uh, you, you said into the void. I mean, the internet never forgets. So mm. I'm not sure. It's, it's, it's pretty... It's a void with a very good memory. But I it, certainly the internet has changed how we, I mean, this is a trite thing to say, but how we interact with one another. But the way that it's changed that isn't just, I hate this term echo chamber. I just hate it. I hate it so much. Uh, and the reason I hate the term is not just because it's been absolutely abused by um, headlines, but also because we've always lived in, in, in echo chamber. We've always surrounded ourselves with people who mostly think the way we do. Um, that's not new. What's new is that it's much easier to find people who represent incredibly niche ideas. And that can be conspiratorial ideas. That can be very violent ideas. That can be extreme racism. Um, and that's so it's much, much easier for people who are part of very small communities to find each other. So that's one way where voices can be amplified because you feel like as soon as you find a, a buddy, effectively, your view seems a lot more justified. And, it, and it's much easier to talk each other up and possibly move from thoughts to 
words on the internet to behaviors offline. Um, but the bigger thing that's happening, and I think you're right, that one thing is that we no longer have, I mean, we often can just say things to someone online without a filter. But again, that's something we could do in real life as well. What's different is that we don't have a fleshy three-dimensional person in front of us. We don't have the emotion and the response and you know all the inhibition that comes with our socialization as human beings. We don't bring that to a tweet. That's not there. We just see maybe a picture of their face that's two-dimensional. And it's really easy to forget the person on the other side of that their, their screen. Um, so it's about rehumanizing that experience online and remembering that there's real people there. And I mean, I think there's two basic rules is one, if you wouldn't say it to someone's face, don't write it online. Easy. Uh, second, I, I've actually heard recently that there's some schools who are teaching teenagers this rule. Just don't just don't do it. Think about it. It's just one second. Just think about it. If you wouldn't say it, don't do it. The second is don't say or write anything online that you wouldn't want read aloud in a courtroom. Because, again, the internet never forgets. And as someone who uh, occasionally is an expert in court, I see regularly tweets and Facebook messages and anything that you could write to other people that they might be able to store, that can be brought up and printed and brought into a courtroom for everybody to see. And that might make you sound like a complete and utter horrible person. Mm. We know, of course, when... Uh, so you give the example in the book of the chatbot created uh, to mimic us effectively that ended up being obviously horrifically racist, Tay. sexist. Yeah. Um, talk, talk us through what that shows us. Probably more about us than it does about technology. Tay was great. Uh, Tay was supposed to be a, I think she was supposed to be a young woman or like a young woman. And the idea was Tay was a Twitter AI who was supposed to learn from what people tweeted at her. So you could tweet at Tay and tell her things. And the idea was she was going to combine all these different statements with her algorithms. I mean, I'm saying her, obviously, it's a, a bot. It's not a real individual. Um, and combine all these, uh, these, these um, interactions and then feed them back. Because the idea was that she would then learn. She would be socialized by the Internet. Um, and, of course, the first thing that happened is after maybe a few friendly tweets, hi, Tay, you know, how are you? Uh, easy ones, it very quickly de-escalated into uh, how much do you want to kill all humans? I hate you, Tay, and lots and lots of racist things and horrible other things. And so Tay started regurgitating that and started saying back that she would very much like to kill all humans and other horrible things. Uh, and so she was shut down within 24 hours. Um, and declared as a failed experiment. And afterwards, it was quite funny to see the response of how, you know, if it takes a village to socialize. You know, what does it say about us if we socialize our AI like this? And no wonder they're all, you know, AI, AI Mageddon is coming. Um, it does reveal our sort of human failings, though, doesn't it, that? But also, one of the things that staggered me, actually, in the book was the percentage of, um, you, you mentioned the percentage of fake account, uh, bot accounts, on all of these social media sites. I think on Twitter it's something like 8%, 8%, is that right? Something like that. It's sort of staggering that so much there isn't actually a person at all anymore. <laughs> I mean, this is a huge debate that will continue, is sort of how do we identify what's real and what's fake? And how does that influence us either way? And I think that, I mean, there's lots of questions around what that does for democracy and if that's influencing our political decision-making. Uh, more recently, there's been some stuff that's come out saying, effectively, no, most of us actually didn't get 
um, fake bots tweeting things or telling us things on Facebook about elections that influence our, our voting. Um, so I think it's it's a question for the for the future, but it's certainly something we should continue to grapple with. Of is how does AI reflect our biases back to us, and how do we make sure that whatever we're creating online is actually part of a world that we want to build. Mm, and technically, of course, technology could offer us some of the solutions to mm-hmm. our problems. Um, are there any things that make you hopeful on that side? Technology? Yeah. So, I, I mean, I created a tech company. So I created a tool that helps uh, helps individuals report workplace harassment and discrimination using an AI chatbot. And so I think that there are certainly applications where we can... Uh, effectively remove a lot of the human bias and human error that comes with recording and reporting instances that are very emotional uh, and helping organizations better tackle them. So, I mean, the reason I created Spot, so it's talktospot.com is the, is the tool, and if is it was specifically because I think technology is going to be one of the best ways to help us improve humanity and tackle issues like Me Too. Well, that neatly takes us to the Me Too debate. Is there anything that you have felt that has been exposed about humanity over the past, it's now two and a bit, two and a bit, no, year and a bit, year and a bit uh, with, with Me Too, that's made you perhaps, I mean, it's easy, isn't it, to think of the villains of Me Too as evil, mm-hmm. um, and there'd be quite a natural inclination to feel that those are people who have abused, you know, in, in many cases, uh, systematically abused people. Um, what, what, what does it show about us, the way we've reacted to Me Too? I think it's a classic case of looking for uh, a few bad apples, looking for a few exemplary individuals who, if we just get rid of them, everyone will be fine. And I think that's what's happened with finding um, often men in positions of power, often uh, very wealthy men in positions of power, and effectively ousting them and publicly ridiculing them. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that their careers are destroyed, which is a whole sub-conversation, which is really interesting. But... um, I think that approach is fundamentally flawed. This idea that we just need to look for those few people who are the problem is wrong because it's a systemic issue. Sexism isn't because there's a couple of people who are kind of broken. Sexism is a cultural, uh, massively fundamental part of our existence. And unfortunately, um, as long there, there are conversations now that are being had that weren't being had when, I don't know, when I was a kid, certainly, or growing up, that I'm really excited are happening right now. Um, but it's it's this is something that affects all of us. And we all need to be thinking about how we can better tackle issues like sexism and how we can change the discourse around how we talk about women and how we talk about sex in general and how we socialize our men. Way before Me Too, feminists were talking about rape, cult, rape culture mm-hmm. as an expression and obviously meaning all the cultural elements, you know, saying this is a more complex problem than a few rapists. One of the things I thought was fascinating in the book, you put um, quotes from lads mags next to two two quotes from lad mags and two quotes from convicted rapists and i couldn't spot i mean i got it wrong guessing <laughs> which were which um but there is something there culturally now the lads mag is something that's dying obviously some of that has moved online right but actually there has been a shift i maybe i'm being optimistic here but it feels like there's been a shift in terms of the language used around these issues do you think that's happening am i am i being too optimistic i think there's definitely been a shift certainly in what is considered acceptable to say out loud mm. um whether there's been this the equivalent fundamental shift in how people actually think 
Uh, I don't know. Um, that's much more difficult to assess. Um, the research you're referring to, so the lads mags versus rapist statements, was from actual research committed um, by a university on this exact topic of, you know, can we how are we normalizing sexual violence was the question. And the answer was yes. And that how we're socializing young men in particular is to talk in vulgar ways um, that make it seem normal to uh, talk and do potentially horrible things to women, um, which might help explain part of our high prevalence of rape. Um, I mean, it's, again, like rapists are also not evil monsters lurking somewhere in dark alleys. I mean, they're Again, they're your fathers. They're potentially your your mother. They're your dad. They're, I mean, maybe not your own, but like they're they're, they're family members of someone. And it's we're really failing, I think, our men and our women by not dealing with this better and not better socializing men to be empathetic and to to, to be crass. It's, it's not crass, but to be a bit more like women, frankly, because we're doing okay with our women. Women don't do that much crime. We're pretty nonviolent. That's a good start. Um, why can't we do the same with boys? It's interesting then, while you acknowledge that, that you don't like the phrase toxic masculinity. I think that's something that you back away from quite heavily. Why, why is that? Um, I, I, do, I, do, I don't hate the word toxic masculinity, but I think we need to be careful um, not to assume it's more it's more assumptions around masculinity that I'm worried about. I'm worried about using masculinity and testosterone specifically as an excuse for why men are different than women. I think we've long pretended that men are just naturally more violent because ooh testosterone, which is bullshit. I mean that's just not the way it works. There's no hormone that causes you to be violent. It can cause you to feel more aggressive. But it's not – nothing is going to make you act out in a certain behavior. That's that's the next step. That's where your decision-making comes in. And certainly legally, we assume there's a difference and you have the ability to stop your impulses from, from actually turning into behavior. Um, so I guess the issue I have with the narrative that we sometimes have around masculinity more general, generally is this idea that there's this inherent difference that men just can't control themselves. And we need to stop that because neither is that scientifically sound, nor does it make sense legally. And of course, it's very unfair on the men who really can control any Absolutely. urges. It Absolutely. sort of assumes that all men are the same in that regard. Yeah, totally. We'll stop here for a moment for a quick break. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. 
The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. You talk in the book about creepiness and we all get a sense sometimes that a person is creepy, although you uh, you actually make the case that we're not very good at telling who's creepy. Mm-hmm. Um, but what is it that we're sensing um, when we think that person creeps me out? It depends is the answer, but probably it's a type of threat detector that's misfiring or sometimes firing appropriately. And so it's this idea that this person has the potential to do harm, but I'm not really sure. Because if someone is actually – if you know someone is going to cause harm, you're more afraid. You're not cre- – it's not creepy. You're scared. Uh, but it's when you're not sure, when you have this, eh, I can't really estimate what this person is going to do and whether they're a threat to me, that's when the creepiness radar goes off. Uh, and as you said, I uh, find it fascinating, the research that shows us that, I mean, the study on Nobel laureates versus America's Most Wanted. There is a research study where scientists asked individuals whether they could, whether an individual they, they were shown, a, a man in this case, was uh, one of America's most wanted criminals or a Nobel laureate. And people couldn't reliably tell the difference just by looking at their faces. Um, and so, I mean, we feel like right, the sort of gut sensation is reliable, but it often leads us astray. And it can really be stigmatizing to individuals who look different or act different than we do. Uh, and that can be because of things like um, you know, disability or because of mental health issues. Or it can be just because they have long fingers or don't care for their hygiene well enough. And this is where the research gets quite weird, is it describes people who we think of as creepy. And so people are asked sort of what do creepy people look like? Because that's actually quite a recent research question. No one had looked at that until recently. And it's things, yeah, it's like long fingers. <laughs> Weird body language. But we do pick up something. So one of the things on that list is people who stand too close Mm. to us. Now, that is an unsettling thing, partly, I think, because it shows that the other person isn't realizing that they're standing too close to you. Mm -hmm. Um, And we all get a funny, you know, I think that's quite relatable, that feeling of why are they in my personal space? Mm -hmm. 
Um, unless, unless you're on the tube, in which case. Yeah, personal space <laughs> has gone out the window. Um, but but there is an element of it where we we don't like somebody who hasn't realised, you know, they haven't noticed in the past other people feeling uncomfortable is what, what I think that people are picking up there. Of course, it may be perfectly nice people who've just never noticed. Yeah, or from different cultures or who uh, are maybe slightly autistic um, or just are bad at social skills. I mean, there's lots, lots and lots of reasons we can think of as to why someone might... You know, stare too long or stand too close or do one of many other creepy things. Um, but I guess it's just the, the point of that chapter certainly is A, to do a creepiness test on yourself. Are you creepy? Um, <laughs> because, again, it's one of those things. Does anyone think that they are creepy or do, do we just think it's something that other people are? Oh, um, <laughs> yeah, that's a horrible thought, isn't it? That someone else finds you creepy. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, and then the other piece is just that we need to be careful not to over-rely on these automatic judgments that we have of other people. The other side to that, of course, is that we tend to think that beautiful people, we, we tend to think that they're kinder than they are. Mm-hmm. We tend to, um, we actually pay them more, don't we? So the people who are attractive get higher salaries. Um, there's and all also sorts too of, attractive. There's, there is yes. too much. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting. Um, you give the example of the chap described as hot felon, mm-hmm. uh, Jeremy Meeks, um, who I actually thought of as, as an example of social mobility. But anyway, I have oh, a slightly different reading of this okay. because my take on him was that he'd actually had a very bad start in life and that by being extraordinarily good looking, he'd got a break when actually, I'm not saying that he was the nicest person, but, but to that, which he certainly wasn't for the crimes he'd been done for, but it gave him a shot at a different life. And I thought, well, who wouldn't take it in that situation? Um, even if you then walk around with the dreadful uh, nickname Hot Felon. Um, <laughs> but, of course, we were making assumptions there that because he was extraordinarily good looking, he must be somebody of, 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 of worth. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's called the halo effect. So it's this idea that, yeah, good people are good and uh, in some way. And so it's not necessarily – so even if someone has, if you will, gone – and proved themselves otherwise in a basic sense, not to say that Jeremy Meeks was bad. I, I'm not going to say that. But certainly he had a criminal record. Um, and uh, sort of despite that, I think when someone is attractive, if he was unattractive, we would have just been like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. Bad people look bad. Done. Um, which is called the devil effect. With good people, he's, it's like, well, but he, but he's attractive, so there must be some good potentially. Uh, and so I think it's an, it was an interesting also sexualization of – uh, an offender in his case. But yeah, it's the, the halo versus the devil effect. Are, they're really interesting because they can carry over into lots of other dimensions of our lives. Um, and again, we just need to be careful that we're not writing people off just because they don't look very good or because they look or, over assuming that pretty people are capable of, of things. Well, the flip side to that, you mentioned mental illness there and the way we make very unfair often judgments about people who are, who are mentally unwell. Mm-hmm. Um is there some reason that we, as a species, do that? I mean, is there something, is it a response that, you know, is somewhere in, has some kind of evolutionary reason there? Or is that just us, again, being rather cruel judges of character? I mean, there could, you could make the argument that they're in an ancestral environment, um, being different was potentially scary and being unwell or showing signs of being unwell or ill, either mentally or physically, uh, could have been seen as extra scary in a time when, you know, basic health issues could kill us. And so this idea that if you don't look quite right, I'm going to keep my distance both socially and physically because I'm worried that I could catch, if you will, what you have. 
and that will keep me alive longer. So, I mean, on a very, very basic level, there probably is a reason for why we automatically have this kind of response of of distancing ourselves from individuals who are mentally ill or physically ill. Um, but, but we're back to this. Just because you have a predisposition, just because your brain is telling you, careful, 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 it doesn't mean that you need to listen to it. Um, and so this is where your better judgment can come in and say, we don't live in an ancestral environment. I know that that isn't something I can catch, whatever, especially with mental illness. You can't catch depression, for example. Um, and so I'm not going to distance myself. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fight this tendency that we all have. And I'm going to you know, physically sit next to them, maybe talk to them. Mm. Let's head back to the, the people that we class as truly evil, the people we don't want to sit next to, uh, probably the most extreme version of this, which is, pe- which is pedophiles, mm. um, which you talk about in the book. And actually reading it, I realized that a lot of the assumptions that you see routinely repeated are incorrect. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted you to explore those, you know, what are we getting wrong about this group of people who we try not probably to think about very much, but probably think about an awful lot, actually. Yeah, pedophiles are one of the most villainized and simultaneously misunderstood groups of people, I think, right now. Not just right now, probably for a long time. Um, I I didn't mean to write a whole chapter about pedophiles, but I did in the end because I just feel like it's, as you said, sort of it's it's a term that is so closely linked with evil that it sort of deserves its own space. And And it does require a bit of a different tone. So I think that because a um, child sexual abuse is quite frequent and affects a lot of people's lives, I think it can be very difficult for people to talk about this issue from that side. But also, if you're, for example, a parent, to think about the fact that your kid might be at risk. Um, so there's lots of levels where we are very wor- – it's, it's a very taboo issue. The problem with that – is that if we continue to treat it as this issue of, I mean, if you look at statistics on how many people think the death penalty should be brought back for pedophiles or for people accused of child sex offenses, um, I mean, it's astonishing. I mean, of, of all the types of crime, this is, this is the bottom of the totem pole. This is the, the worst of the worst that you could most people can think of. Um, and so the question is why and what do we actually know about it? And I think on, on a very basic the very basic answer is, as far as we can tell, nobody chooses to have a primary sexual interest in minors. And so it seems very much to be something you're born with, just like most other sexual preferences. I mean, you're not, you don't wake up one day and choose to be heterosexual. You don't wake up one day and choose to be homosexual. That's just how your brain is made. And so it seems to be the case, uh, especially for pedophiles. Now, this is where disambiguation is really important, is that the other thing we get wrong most of the time is that... When we talk about pedophiles, pedophiles are people who are attracted to individuals who are prepubescent. That's who we're actually talking about. And most people we label pedophiles are not that. Most of them are sexually, if at all, primarily attracted to either prebescent individuals or teenagers. So that would be hebophiles or ephebophiles. And so they have a different label and there's a completely different prognosis for individuals, for example, who are sexually attracted to 15-year-olds than to 5-year-olds. Now, intuitively, that makes a lot of sense, that those are completely different kinds of attractions. The other piece of it is that just because you have a sexual preference for something doesn't mean you're going to act it out. And so most people who, in, in studies on this, most individuals who say that they have a sexual 
preference or within their sexual preferences, um, individuals under the age of 18 are included. Most of them include teenagers and most of them have never acted on it. And this is really important. So they're they're non-offending individuals who are sexually attracted to to minors. Um, Then there's the group of individuals who might who do affect against offend against children, but they might not have a sexual preference for that group. It might be that individuals who are, for example, exploiting a 16-year-old or a 15-year-old, that that's not their main attraction. It's just that they've chosen an easy target. So there's a lot of, lot of nuance that we just don't talk about. And that makes it very difficult to effectively have a conversation about what this thing is that we refer to as pedophilia. And, and this is the next piece, how we could possibly treat it and prevent it from happening. And one of the other points you make is that actually we associate pedophilia and hebophilia uh, with men mm-hmm. particularly. And obviously, actually, there's sort of a natural assumption that most of the offenders we're talking about here are male. Now, I was surprised by quite how many, well, it's still obviously a minority, but there are actually a, a surprisingly high percentage of women who are offenders. Mm-hmm. And what? why do you think it is that we associate it with masculinity? I mean, unfortunately, sexual assault of and sexual abuse of all kinds we associate with masculinity. So this isn't just limited to individuals who are sexually attracted to children. Um, but it's, I mean, sex in general, we assume that I think men are the ones who are more likely to seek and find sex, that men are sexual creatures in ways that women maybe aren't. And I think there's this particular stereotype for children that women are caregivers. Women are these natural, protective, warm, positive, beautiful creatures who all we want to do is take care of these, take care of children. Um, And that just isn't true either. And so it can be as problematic as the male assumption in the sense that we then forget that women can also, of course, be offenders. Women can also have these sexual preferences. And we need to be careful there as well. And we need to educate ourselves on the fact that, you know, that that's a real phenomenon. And it's not a weird thing also if – so I, I know a few men who have had contact um, and, and, and were sexually, sexually exploited as men by women. And they don't want to talk about it because they feel like it's this really – stigmatized thing even today. And so I think we really need to change the conversation about what's acceptable to talk about. And of course, women can also be offenders. More generally, the way we react, I think, to so-called evil women is quite different from how we view men in that situation. I mean, there have been a couple of examples in this country where there have been horrific crimes committed and maybe a girlfriend has tried to cover it up or has, you know, given a false alibi or something. And she is demonized for something that clearly is not on the scale of, I mean, this particular case I'm thinking of where somebody had murdered, where a man had murdered two young children. And the girlfriend was was completely turned into, you know, the villainess of the piece. Now, clearly what she did was absolutely wrong but she wasn't aware of his behavior mm-hmm. necessarily. And, you know, the sort of level of wrongdoing was clearly very much worse in, in, in insanely so in his, in his direction. But I think there's a, a strange thing. I mean, the media at the time was quite criticized for how it treated this woman. Um, but what is it about women where we assume they can't do terrible, terrible things too? Um, and, and, you know, when we have female 
serial killers, who are obviously much, much rarer than male serial killers, we do tend to treat them as though they're even more mm. of an aberration. Yeah, well, I mean, in, in reality, they, they are more of an aberration in terms of behaving certainly violently or like female serial killers, as far as we know, are really rare. Um, and so there is something different in that they are probably breaking even more social norms around certainly their gender as well as social norms, um, which which is an extra level of hurdles that they're overcoming. Um, but of course, all again, all of us have these capacities in us. It's about how we teach people to control them and how we teach individuals to deal with them and how to react to situations in the most appropriate ways. Um, and so I think that with, with women, I mean, ultimately, there are lots of ways in which uh, women also who are caught offending and go through the justice system are disadvantaged. But overall, generally, if, for example, a woman is charged with a, che- a sexual offense, um, I mean, teachers are a classic example. I mean, take a 25-year-old woman who sexually assaults a 15-year-old boy, and the boy at the time says he's consenting, but of course he can't actually consent to this act. Um, I mean, that woman is sort of seen as, hey, she's a hot teacher. If it's the other way around and it's a male 25-year-old teacher and a female student who's 15, suddenly it's an atrocity. So I think that there can be media representations as well that favor or at least put into a different kind of light women who offend. Uh, And often the framing there is around sort of mental illness, sort of, oh, she must be mentally ill. That's why she offended. With a man, it's just, oh, it's, he's just a guy. He's just doing guy things in a different level. So I think it's, it is interesting how our narrative is different for different, different genders. But uh, I guess, again, the fundamental issue is we're all capable of, of horrible things and we shouldn't assume that it's just men. And what do you want uh, your reader and your listener to take from from the book in general about evil, what would you like them to go away and rethink about? The biggest thing, I think, is twofold. That The first thing I want readers to do and listeners to do is to engage critically with their own assumptions and ideas. And by that, I mean think about taboo thoughts. Like, think about the unthinkable, if you will, and really face your own hypocrisies. Think about how your moral compass actually works and question it. So think about why. Why do I think this is evil or isn't evil? What is it about this that I find problematic? And how can I, and using that introspection, how can I prevent myself from going down a moral path that I would consider abhorrent? The second thing is, and this is, again, quite funny, given that we've been using the term for the last hour, but stop calling people and things evil. Just don't use the term. And when people do use the term in a conversation, ask them what they mean by that. Because almost always in conversation, it falls apart as soon as they have to explain what they're actually talking about. So I think calling people evil automatically others and dehumanizes individuals. And so we need to be very, very careful and just just don't use it. Thank you very much. That's brilliant. Thank you. Thank you.